1: Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week's edition comes from New Haven, Connecticut, home of Yale University, and of my guest this week, Paul Kennedy. Professor Kennedy's author of a classic work called The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, which dealt with 500 years of world history from 1500 to 2000. I read the book when it first came out in 1987, and it set me thinking about a crucial question. How long will America's period as the world's most powerful nation last? And that question seems even more important now with the rise of China. So I was delighted to be able to visit Paul Kennedy in Yale and to hear his thoughts. What does history tell us about the current struggle between America and China? In 1945, President Harry Truman of the US announced the surrender of Japan and hailed the beginning of a new era.
2: It was the spirit of liberty which gave us our armed strength and which made us invincible in battle. We now know that that spirit of liberty, the freedom of the individual and the personal dignity of man are the strongest and toughest and most enduring forces in all the world.
1: The end of the Second World War left the United States as by far the largest economy in the world. But it left Britain close to bankruptcy and unable to sustain the burdens of a global empire. In 1947, India gained its independence. August 15, 15th, 1947, Independence Day for India. In London, the flags of the new Indian Union flutter over the headquarters of India and Pakistan. An era has ended, a new epoch begins. A subcontinent larger than the whole of Europe becomes two self-governing dominions within the British Commonwealth of Nations. Two years later, Mao Zedong announced the foundation of the People's Republic of China in Tiananmen Square in Beijing. Today, both India and China are now seen as rising superpowers in their own right, Paul Kennedy's about to start work on a new edition of The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, which will deal in particular with the extraordinary rise of China. So I asked him how he looks at the rivalry between Washington and Beijing.
2: One of the, perhaps the biggest consideration I have to put in this revision, at least of the reflections on the rise and fall, is how much to devote and how much to focus upon the rise of China. It is the single biggest thing in terms of power shifts and production shifts over the past 30 years. It has impacts, we can see already, on the way in which initial naval power balances are shifting in the Western Pacific and Southeast Asia and will presumably continue to shift when we look at the size of the projected Chinese Navy in the next 10 years. And the challenge of Turning it last two second edition is actually quite exciting I me. Mean.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. And the economic weaknesses that you spoke about in the late 80s, people were very focused on the deficit and so on. Looking at the economics, are we talking about relative decline? In other words, simply China's got five times the population. And if they get up to a certain per capita level, they will be in, you know, a much larger economy. Or are there also deep weaknesses in the American economy that, or, or perhaps it's some combination, that is is sapping their power.
2: This has to be the double-headed argument. It's not just that if a country which has four to five times your population manages through its own efforts to get to a standard of living only half of yours, they're still outweighing you two to one in terms of crude measures of GDP. But it's the qualitative and technological shift as well as that, which is significant, the way in which they are moving into uh, very significantly artificial intelligence systems, they're moving into space, they're designing in the first stages of their military naval growth, weapons of the asymmetric power. The one which isn't as capable and as strong as the other, but they're going to have weapon systems which reduce that gap. And uh, they're building up an enormous reserve of foreign currency holdings, such that if it came to some big financial crash across the Pacific, they may be more easily able to weather that with four to six to 11 trillion dollars in their war cash. Than the U.S., but I think it was Burke who said, "Large powers take an awful long time to die," <laughs> and uh, the Ottoman Empire is probably what he was thinking of. The United States has itself an enormous amount of indigenous strengths, along with its inherent and, in some ways, increasing weaknesses on on socio-economic side, and that uh, you can have a flourishing domestic policy, but still not be able to carry out a vast array of overseas obligations.
1: It was what you called in the book, imperial overstretch. Yes,
2: I turned a phrase that my old boss, Sir Basil Littlehart, had used in describing the British Empire in the 1930s, facing the array of global contenders and said that it was the largest example of strategic overstretch that a great power had had in the globe. And I turned strategic overstretch into imperial overstretch. And then in the very last part of the last chapter of Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, I said the challenge to American policymakers in the decades to come will be to avoid the risk of what historians may fairly call imperial overstretch, that is to say, the array of its commitments and obligations overseas is larger than the array of its economic and military
1: capacities to handle them. And, you know, in the subsequent years, America, I think, exacerbated that problem by its heavy commitments in the Middle East, the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war. Do you think that the withdrawal from Afghanistan is to some extent an effort to deal with that mismatch of resources? Yes, I think uh,
2: Biden is quite clear on this, and some of his advisers are too. What on earth, given all of the obligations and concerns which the United States has, this would be the argument, what on earth are we doing following the British and the Russians and other... Imperial adventurous states trying to bring peace and order and Western values and stuff to a essentially scattered tribal warlike community. Eisenhower said, Don't go back into Asia. This is in the 1950s and before Vietnam. Yes. He said, You know, the US has been partially in Asia and it shouldn't even try to do it. And what Eisenhower, I think, meant in his wonderful set of calibrations is the US has to balance its means and its ends, and it weakens itself by overextending. And it also distracts maybe the policymakers from dealing with some domestic challenges, which you really have to get to grips
1: with as well. Mm. And in recent years, uh, another very influential take on great power rivalry has been Your Harvard colleague Graham Allison's work on the Thucydides' trap, as he calls it, and the argument essentially is that great power transitions frequently and maybe even usually involve war.
2: Do you agree? Yes, but it's interesting to note the list of the great power transitions, 14 of them in the appendix to Graham Allison's book on the Thucydides' trap, showing that... This story of the great power transition, the rising power challenging and nudging the status quo power into a secondary place or defeat, stops in the narrative of conflict with the coming of nuclear weapons. Of the 14 cases of a rising number two, displacing a number one, all the way back to Sparta and Athens, the challenge doesn't go to war in the post-1945 period, and the historian and the political scientists are left scratching their heads Is does this story have to be altered because of the fear on each side of the weapon system? And now it doesn't mean, Gideon, that the story of The rising number two being more and more successful economically and in technological advances and new technologies doesn't mean that it doesn't displace the existing power and become the the largest economy in the world and the most successful economy in the world and steadily have a greater standard of living and a greater influence in world affairs by 2030 and 2040 where One would say that the U.S. is in many cases down to number two, but the displacement has been in the measures of economic and productive power, not the overtaking of number one by number two by the use of force.
1: Yeah. Do you think then that you can have this displacement activity, say in terms of global political influence? if the overtaking is solely economic, if there isn't this kind of dreadful marking event of a war? It's not going to be solely economic. One sees that the Chinese
2: government, following those rising great powers of the past, diverting some of their created wealth and resources to the military and especially the naval and air force and technological weapon saving systems. Now those who wish for the US Congress and government who spend much more on the naval budget point to the fact that China now is launching more warships every year than the United States is doing, that they're developing ever larger aircraft carriers, that their submarine technologies are advancing more and more as well. So do we see that age-old story which I tried to describe in the theory at the beginning of Rise and Fall of a Great Powers. First of all, the rising power develops successfully over decades, an increase in its wealth creation, larger than that of its rivals and its neighbors. And at a certain stage, when it is manifestly the rising economic power, it also, maybe for feelings of security, as well as national pride, begins to invest some of its resources in the military and naval dimension. This, I think, we see quite clearly with China. So you may not answer the challenge to America's number one position solely by putting a lot more money into new aircraft or into new Aegis-type cruisers, because if you lose the fight, if you lose the challenge, in the longer term and greater term, in the economic productivity race, you're going to be
1: affected also in the military dimension. still quite striking, though, isn't it, how important naval rivalry is? And I mean, I think that was, as you were saying, you know, a focus of a lot of your early work, the Anglo-German naval rivalry. But to me, it's slightly surprising, you know, in this age of high-tech AI you were talking about, that still something as basic as ships patrolling the seas... Why is that still so important?
2: Perhaps it is especially so in regard to this theme of American-Chinese rivalry and contestation, simply because of the sheer dimensions of geography. If it's across the five to 6,000 miles of the Pacific, if it involves in the early stages of this conflict the inner island ring of the Asian coast, and then the secondary ring, and then maybe even somewhere like the Philippines or more of a a naval move into Central Pacific, only naval platforms are going to be able to carry the missile systems if there is to be some contestation on the sea. So even the more sophisticated of the hypersonic, long-range missile systems that are being talked about enthusiastically in the professional magazines, actually might not work when you think that you've got to go over the curvature of the Earth to send your missiles effectively against the other side. In any case, you want the reassurance of saying that your, that is American fleet, and warships are going to be there when needed mm-hmm. in the Western Pacific. The historian of a much bigger, longer term structural story here would say it is still amazing that one is talking really about whether U.S. ships pull back from the East Asian littoral or the 100 kilometers or 200 kilometers. Nobody's yet talking about a Chinese aircraft carrier fleet off the coast of California, off Baja, California, or China having like in the island of Jamaica or Cuba the relationship that the U.S. has to Taiwan. Or to South Korea, for that matter. But yes, I think that in this story, sea power, naval power has to be part of the assessment of the American position, of the rise of China.
1: It's striking, isn't it? I mean, obviously, the story of the British Empire, the British Navy was so crucial, you know, of all yeah. the armed forces, the defeat of Napoleon and so on. But I wondered whether, you know, maybe outsiders don't fully appreciate how important the American Navy has been to America's conception of its own power because, you know, the war in the Pacific, they were attacked by Japan, and establishing American hegemony over the Pacific was critical to their rise to, yes. to great power status. Yes, it was. Uh,
2: so I have been interested in merging, Gideon, the story of naval issues with the rise and fall of the great power issues into a new book called Victory at Sea, Maritime Conflict and the Shift in the global power balances in the Second World War. And Mm. what I'm trying to do there is not just retell the story of Midway and Guadalcanal and Lady Gulf and the Malta convoys and the Battle of the Atlantic, but also try to look at what's underneath this three-ocean battle for six years, underneath that, A huge shift occurs in the global productive power balances, such that in 1936, the beginning of the story of a book, there's six largest navies in world affairs, and 10 years later, only 10 years later, in 1946, there's essentially one gigantic navy in world affairs, reflecting America's number one position and productive shift as a Secondary Navy, the Royal Navy, but already under the Labour government, is shedding such a lot of its ships as well as parts of its empire. And it's the biggest lurch and shift in world power in productive economic terms on the one hand and in naval size of Navy terms on the other hand. So the fact that
1: China now has at least a number of ships, more ships than the US Navy, may tell us something. Yes, and just another little anecdote. Right
2: now, when I get from my London literary agent six monthly or yearly reports of sales or royalties on various of my books in different languages across the globe, I would say that the rise and fall of a great powers, royalties coming in from the Chinese edition is more than any other individual item coming in. And probably the super-produced British naval Mastery in Chinese edition is also something which sells there more than it does in anglo Merkel's Germany or uh, in in Italy or anything else like that. The Chinese are looking at historical lessons.
1: Yeah, that's very interesting. Just to finish that, you know, one thing that struck me again, looking at the thesis you set out, was that when the Soviet Union collapsed shortly after you wrote that book, a lot of it was to do with economic decay, the thing you'd focused on. But there was also kind of social and political decay going on. And I wondered whether, to put it bluntly, the election of Donald Trump, the internal divisions in the United States, the challenges to American democracy are now at least as big a threat to America's great power status as these indices of economic and military might.
2: So in in measuring the relative strengths and weaknesses of your number one power vis-a-vis the challenges, I think it is the case that one just kind of total up the number of machine guns in your U.S. Marine Corps, you kind of total up the number of destroyers and say that is the effective comparative measure of power You have to look at some of these other non-military, maybe in some cases, uh, non-material measures. That is to say, is the social fabric of the society bearing up? Is the political leadership representative or authoritarian or whatever it is demonstrably effective, or is it fading? Is it throwing up... uh, eccentric Roman Emperor or American president who by misjudged actions, in some cases sheer stupidities or prejudices, could weaken what otherwise was a inherently still relatively strong system. To what extent does the political and social dimension, if properly balanced and coherent and wise, enhance the raw material economic and military resources and to what extent could they weaken them if, if the society is torn internally if there is a paralysis in the political voting systems if there is a distraction by looking inwards so that those in power just do not enjoy the freedom of time to be able to look at the world and do proper reassessment of it if it is folly at the top, such as was shown in the four year presidency of Mr Trump. To what extent, despite the boastfulness that he made America great and number one, to what extent does the folly weaken the longer lasting power and position of the United States? Impossible question to answer, but what's your sense? Of course it can, but it also means that Unless the damage wrought by the acts of folly led to permanent damage, then the replacement of folly by sensible and coherent and balanced two or three presidencies, maybe you'd need that much, could lead to some degree of recovery of a relative position. And the final thing is that you could focus too much on simply the strengths and weaknesses of the number one power in your spotlight and not be looking at what's happening to the contenders. There was a great deal of attention given to the weaknesses and decay and challenges of the United States in the 1980s, sometimes to the degree that you thought the Russians were 10 feet tall. And he didn't look at some of the developing weaknesses and challenges which were happening on the other side. And indeed, Japan, at the same time, there were people saying Japan would be number one. Yes. So if you're looking, concentrating on that, if you're looking at Japan as number one economically or the USSR is number one in strategic missiles, rising red fleet, etc., you might be missing the fact that the other side also has its weaknesses. So the very interesting thing that we are now looking at is if we're gonna do a scrutiny of the strengths and weaknesses of the American Republic as it goes through this third decade of the 21st century, should we not be doing an equally searching look if we can because of the way the other side disguises a lot of this, should be doing as as much as we can a searching scrutiny of the weaknesses as well as the strengths of his rising Chinese number two.
1: That was Paul Kennedy in Yale, ending this edition of the Rackman Review. Thanks very much for joining me, and I hope you'll be able to join us again next week.